Aqua lads and aqua lasses, welcome back to the continuing journeys of Starman. My name is Johnny C, and thanks so much for joining us here for the day's courtroom proceedings. Now, I know that the courts have been under fire lately, and guess what? It's absolutely justified, and it enrages me, but this is a show where we try the cases of Dave Meltzer's worst-rated wrestling matches in history. And as you can see from today's title, we are continuing our quest to try matches that are ranked negative one and a half stars. Now, what we do here on the show, as I guess I probably just summarized, is we take Meltzer's list, we're divvying it up into sections based on the star rankings, and I am going to try these matches in a court of podcasting law. Basically, I'm going to look at the evidence as I watch the match and present the evidence to you along with my verdict. We're going to find out if these matches are guilty or not guilty of the star ranking that they were betrothed by Mr. Meltzer. Now, today's docket, I guess you could say, is kind of full. And what I mean by that is we're going to actually be trying four separate cases today. Yikes. I hope the lawyers brought their cups of perfectly filled water. You ever see a lawyer spill the water out of the little jar when they're pouring it in the courtroom? I've never seen it either, but it's got to have happened, right? Oh, no, my papers. Oh, my precious documents. The water is everywhere. Ah, uh, but there's no time for such comedy because, like I said, we've got a full docket today. But... Here's the interesting piece of information about these four matches. If you take three of them and add together the ring time, it's just about equal to the other match that we'll be covering today. And so I think that's going to make it clear why we're going to be able to stuff so many cases into just one episode of Starman. But if it's your first time joining us, thank you. It's much appreciated and I hope you have a fun time. Uh, but I do recommend going back and taking a listen to the first two episodes just so you can have an understanding about some of the rulings that the court has laid down in the past. Because after all, our historic rulings that do not get overturned here in the Aquaquake Cave definitely set precedent for the cases that we try in an ongoing fashion. But... Now that we've properly explained what it is that we're here to do, let's get these bad boys started. All right, here we go. First case on the docket. Order. I hear you back there. I need order. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I've always wanted to do that. All right, here we go. The case of Perry Saturn versus Kendall Wyndham. Nothing really memorable right off the top there. Because, you know, that's what I find so interesting about this is that some of these matches you see on the docket for the day and you're like, oh boy, I know that one. It lives in infamy. But I love these little ones that don't stand out to me either way. It ensures that the uh, verdict laid down by the court is going to be based on only the evidence. And that's what's important to the integrity of Starman. But it takes place on September 14th, 1998, on an episode of Monday Nitro. Hey, fun fact for today's cases. Three of them take place in 1998 in sequential order, meaning they actually flow through the natural history. One of them takes us exactly one year in the future, 1999. But anywho, this case originated in Greenville, South Carolina, at the Bylow Center. Funny side note about the Bylow Center... They don't have bylows where I live. And the first time I ever saw bylow was in the summer of 98 on a vacation that I took, which you can hear all about on episode 2 of Kingfish, a show here in the Aqua Cave that uh, relives the Shane McMahon Sunday Night Heat commentary journey. Um, but anyway, I saw a bylow, and I thought it was pronounced below, a la D'Lo Brown. Ah, the folly of youth. 
Anywho, let's get some context before I present the evidence. Because, of course, a wise man once said that context is king. So, it's the night after Fall Brawl 98 featuring War Games. Featuring the first War Games that wasn't actually War Games. This night is probably a historically known night for one simple reason. Well, Well, let me see if you can know the reason. When I loaded up the episode on Peacock... The portrait that represented the episode was Ric Flair in a suit crying. It is indeed that night. The night of the four horsemen reunion. I get a touch of Alzheimer's. I forgot the fourth horse. Ric Flair! Last night at Fall Brawl, Perry Saturn defeated Raven and freed the flock. During Saturn's entrance, I noticed his music sounds like it was ripped straight from a Nintendo 64 and it makes me nostalgic. It was a victory last night for hard work. A victory for integrity, says Tony Schiavone. And his opponent, Bray's Uncle Kendall. And he's going to be wrestling tonight in a pair of ripped light denim with a black glove to honor his father, apparently. He's got the background, the ability, the size. This is going to be a good one, says Larry Zabisco. Well, Larry, we will let the evidence decide. And speaking of the evidence, it looks like court is about to. Uh, it looks like court is almost in session because referee Mark Curtis calls for the bell using his entire body. It's like he's throwing a baseball at top speed. He even gets his leg into it. But God damn it, that's why we love referee Mark Curtis. His call for the bell is answered, and we must now have order in the court, gentlemen. Let's present the evidence. And again, just so we're all clear in the evidence procedures, um, I'm not going to take the time or make the podcast less fun by stopping my presentation to be like, here's something bad, here's something good. Those were the opposite inflections for what I wanted to get across. But my tone will indicate to you the nature of the evidence. It's pretty easy to follow, folks. I promise. Let's get underway and you'll see what I'm talking about. Kendall Whitnam takes control with punches. He backs Saturn into the rope and goes for an Irish whip, but makes a cancellation mid-move and opts for a body slam instead. Uh, Your Honor, I believe this is indicating some jitters for being on the big show. Perhaps. Perry Saturn, though, takes control and pushes Kendall into the corner and starts beating on him. In a fun piece of interaction here, Saturn chooses to back Kendall into the corner where Mark Curtis is standing. And Mark Curtis, like a boss, just jumps up on the top turnbuckle and sits there, but still admonishes Saturn with a five count, indicating he's got to get him out of the ropes. Okay. God bless you, referee Mark Curtis. Kendall then eats a reverse crescent kick, or a super kick, and he sells it kind of with a stall delay, and it makes it look like that was a pretty fun maneuver to take. You know, it's a stiff kick, and it's a decent presentation. Eventually, Kendall gets on offense, and his offensive segments are indeed offensive. It's just limited. A lot of punching, a lot of elbow strikes. It's, you know, it's not like he's exposing the business or anything, but man, he's starting to put the audience to sleep. He eventually hits Saturn with a back elbow, But Saturn sells this back elbow like Rikishi would take a clothesline. So Saturn is clearly on his game here, folks. Kendall, as a way to show that he has control of this athletic contest, decides to lock in an arm bar. Saturn's comebacks, though, are quick. They're they're fun in spirit. He strikes hard and... When he loses, being on the offense, meaning Kendall comes back, Saturn sells it hard. Like, oh, my babyface fire has clearly been stomped out. And that's kind of just wrestling 101, and I don't have a problem with it. But here's where it gets a little more damning. The contrast between Saturn being on offense and being the babyface is just such a contrast in presentation to when Kendall is on fire in control. 
you know, when Saturn's heating up, I'm kind of like, why has this match got such a low rating? And then Kendall takes control, and I'm like, oh, that's why. Again, he's just kind of putting me to sleep. Eventually, Saturn's on the outside selling, uh, laying on his back. And wouldn't you know it, Kendall, he, he drops an elbow from the apron to the floor. And look, guys... I know he didn't spring up onto the top rope and do six flips and land with thunderous impact, but, I mean, he did something. (laughs) I know that sounds like faint praise, damning with faint praise, but, eh, I don't know. I was kind of like, hey, I'll be damned. I I didn't expect that. But again, after this elbow drop, even on the outside, it's just more punches. He whips Saturn back into the ring, clearly in control. So he could really start whipping out some of his big spa oh, chin lock. <laughs> Just back to the old chin lock. While arguing with the referee, uh, Kendall sort of cinches in on Saturn. Now he's clearly calling a spot. And here's where we start to really, you know, lean into the negativity. The spot he calls is a reversal. He wants Saturn to cinch in a small package, which Saturn does with ease but here's the problem folks they're right into the ropes Kendall has called a spot without having the proper context it's like if a director of a film were to be like oh here's where you share your first kiss Uh, you know we've waiting the whole movie for the couple to finally get together but they decide to have their first kiss during the intense moment of the lightsaber battle. It just doesn't gel. That's not when it's supposed to happen. Don't call for a pinning co- a spot when you're right next to the ropes. It's just bad directing, in my opinion. But again, we're in Rest Hold City. Kendall Windham hits a gut wrench suplex. Why am I so excited that Kendall Windham hit a gut wrench suplex? Again, that's the problem. I shouldn't be excited that there's a gut wrench suplex. Now, Saturn eats a big boot from Kendall Windham that misses by a country mile. And now we've got some more business exposure. It It's quick, I will say, but it's still one of those things that happens. Saturn makes a babyface comeback, but he can't really do much more than strike because Kendall just doesn't seem to be game to take anything. Now... Kendall Windham cuts off Saturn's big babyface comeback with a low-blow shoulder dive. I don't know any other way to describe it, but here's the problem. If the script calls for the match to keep going, you know, meaning that even though Saturn's in the process of a comeback spot, I've got to cut him off because we're not ready to go home yet. And if you got to do a low-blow, fine. Happens all the time. But Kendall decides that this is the spot that he's going to use to put down the comeback but he does it right in front of the referee and Mark Curtis God love him I mean he sees this rule infraction he can't DQ him because that's not the script he does at least admonish Kendall but it doesn't make any sense why this wouldn't be a blatant disqualification it's not a hardcore match we're not in ECW or the Russo-Bischoff era of WCW a low blow is a DQ Again, Kendall makes a bad call as the heel that's supposed to be calling this match. It's bad directing. Plain and simple. More punching. A belly to back off the middle rope by Kendall to Saturn. At least shows me that Kendall's capable of something. Kendall then reverses a suplex attempt with like a variant of the roll the dice or a snake eye, you know, the uh, crossroads. It's got so many different names, guys, but you know what I'm talking about. Kind of out of nowhere, Saturn hits a DVD that does look good because Kendall is tall. And Saturn gets him over safely. He drives him in. And it's the one, two, three. And that's it. So, what this was, was a very eye-opening experience for me in, in this exercise I've undertaken. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Saturn is a very game babyface here. He's very capable, and his his babyface spots are fine. Like, when he's in control, I've there's there's nothing wrong with this match at all. It might not be the best. at You know, it's, I want to make that clear, but it's certainly not offensive, okay? But the heel, the director, the man that sets the pace here is calling a bad match. And when he's not calling for an interaction of the two, when he's just in control... He's falling back 
on non-entertaining offense. Punches and chin locks, arm bars. But here is the problem. We have a couple of instances of business exposure, but they're not so massive and egregious or loud to where it's laughable. So I can't really damn them with that evidence, I feel like, because... ah, And it's not like the classic Macho Man Hulk Hogan cage match from our last episode where we had a cage match that ended without a finish. I'm kind of at a crossroads here myself. I feel like I'm ready to render a verdict, but I want to make it very clear that this match is not good. Okay? But... I feel like I have to find the match not guilty due to a lack of damning evidence. But again, this match is not good. It is boring, but it is not 20 minutes boring. Okay? It's also aided in the proceedings of the evidence that I've given that it's a random match on a random Nitro in the first hour. I mean, Zabisco's still on commentary, so, you know, I don't feel good, all right? But this is not negative. If that's, again, this is why it's important, I feel like, to listen to the back catalog episodes, especially when you're dealing with cases that are all the same star ranking. If this is negative one and a half, you know, it's sort of opening the floodgates, and I feel like it sets in motion a ranking system that isn't actually fair. So based on all of that, I'm rendering a not guilty verdict, but ooh, you guys are lucky, and I don't ever want to see Kendall Wyndham on my TV again. Now, our next case is going to take us just one month into the future, and it gives me no joy to tell you, unfortunately, that our next case is indeed a case of domestic violence. The scene of the crime is the Rosemont Horizon, October 19th, 1998. It is indeed Judgment Day. Hey, fun fact, this show was the 25th anniversary of In Your House, if you use WWF logic, as it's the 25th edition of In Your House. It's the case of The Undertaker versus that piece of shit, Glenn Jacobs. All right, fine. It's the case of The Undertaker versus Kane. Now, let's give this match some context because this might be the most important piece of this entire, well, case, if you will. And, and, and I think once I get into the match itself, it will, it will become very apparent. Now, at this point in WWF history, the WWF championship... (laughs) You ever notice how normal people say WWF and then Todd Pettengale says WWF? Uh, Spoiler alert, over on the North-South Connection podcast network, every other Sunday we've got the Multiverse of Fabulousness, and I just recorded our latest episode, which features a rebooking of the first ever WWF in your house pay-per-view, which should be hitting your airwaves shortly. Check your local listings. But back to my original point, we all say WWF, but Todd Pettengale says WWF, WWF. Someone's going to win a WWF house at WWF in your house. I don't know what it is about it, but it's so apparent, uh, and it sticks out like a sore thumb. But the title's held in abeyance. At the last encounter uh, on pay-per-view, breakdown in your house, Kane and The Undertaker battled Stone Cold in a triple threat match. Now, Kane and The Undertaker went for a pinning combination at the exact same time. And for some reason, the referee in charge, Earl Hebner, decided to lay down the 1-2-3. And so, while Stone Cold Steve Austin is clearly not the champion, who is? And so, it leads us to this encounter between The Undertaker and Kane with the vacant championship held, uh, you know, to be given to the winner. Now, Stone Cold Steve Austin has been uniquely positioned as the guest referee for this match. And Vince McMahon wants to force Austin to declare the new champion himself. And actually says that if he doesn't uh, referee the match in a fair way, he's going to fire him. Now, in the interim between these two pay-per-views, we get so many famous WWF Vince and Stone Cold moments. I mean a lot. Uh, You know, this doesn't necessarily involve Stone Cold per se, 
but Kane and Undertaker do famously break Mr. McMahon's ankle. Uh, but we also get the Zamboni moment, the moment with Vince's car in the concrete. After they break the ankle, we get the moment in the hospital. I'll take it from here, nurse. Um, so I don't know necessarily if I can recommend this match to you. Uh, we'll get there, but I certainly recommend the video package in front of it. Now, as we get to the arena itself, you can already tell before the match even starts that Chicago is hot. And it gets even hotter because Kane's entrance is actually pretty great. And the fans do give him a pop. Good for them. There are actual Kane signs in the arena that I do see myself. And it's not uh, very negative Kane signs that don't age well. It's stuff like Kane rules. Uh, I actually think it was wittier than Kane rules. But I can't recall off the top of my head, so I'll just use that generic thing. And here comes The Undertaker to his actual rock and roll version of the song. I've been hearing the ministry version over on UPN quite a bit, but this is the actual just straight Undertaker before the ministry with the guitars, and I fucking love it. He does come out limping. I feel like he's been limping since the King of the Ring 98. And I'm pretty sure that this entrance that he has where he walks down the aisle with a bunch of concussion bombs going off behind him is a famous... Uh, Undertaker moment that's used in some video package. I can't put my finger on it, but the visual really sticks out to me. Uh, JR indicates on commentary that The Undertaker dominated Hulk Hogan to win his first championship, so shots fired. And the crowd is in a fever pitch as Undertaker and Kane face off in the ring. They offer one another a handshake, and as they do, the glass breaks. It's perfect storytelling already. Kane and The Undertaker are going to go to war, but they shake hands, and then Austin comes into the, the fray. He's going to be the wrinkle that's going to prevent them from having a match, you would think. It's so perfectly timed, and Jesus Christ, the Austin pop is so loud. There's a great sign in the audience that says, Paging Dr. Austin, that thing already being over. Um, he hits the four turnbuckle posts. He goes to offer the uh, combatants some referees instructions. It appears that he's warning them not to offer low blows or pull hair, but he's actually encouraging it. He offers them both a middle finger, yells, ring a damn bell, and so the bell does. And folks, quiet, please, order in the court. It's time to hear the official case of The Undertaker versus Kane, case number JD-98. Just in case we have to end up trying multiple cases involving these two individuals, we'll just assign this one an arbitrary number. Now, again, with the evidence, <clears throat> I will have to neutralize my voice to begin the clear presentation. <clears throat> Almost right away, there is a punch fuck-up. I'm not sure who is responsible or how to accurately describe it, so I am going to throw myself on the mercy of the court, but we've got two superstars in prominent positions and somehow they fuck up a punch. Now, Taker goes old school. And Jim Ross on commentary says, Vintage Undertaker! Now, I can't really give them credit for that, that being this actual match. But we give Michael Cole such a hard time about it. And here we are in 1998, and Jim Ross fucking said it, who's like our commentary savior. So I just wanted to point it out, because I'm never watching this match again. Spoiler alert. Chicago is into the match but they're cheering for the referee. In my opinion, this match has gone on about two to three minutes so far, and that is way too long without Austin doing something to fuck with the objection. Whoa, whoa. It's our first and only objection so far. Counselor, what's the problem? Well, literally as I paused to make this note and unpaused, Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, is forced to count during a pinning scenario, and does a very dramatic almost one count. He holds his arm up high as if to slam it down for one, but it just suspends in the air. And it's a, you know, it's my hope in a glimmer of sunshine that this is going to be the story of the match. Kane then goes for a count, and Austin does a fast count. After a very minor big boot, it almost ends the match. And I'm like, ooh, this is cool. This is the story you need to tell. And then... Kane and Undertaker brawl on the outside, and Stone Cold goes to move the camera cables so they don't trip. No! He's offering them to the Undertaker, saying perhaps, Hey, you want to choke that big red bastard? Well, here's some cables for you. Now, 
This cable spot is sort of the end of the glimmer of hope. As they're on the outside, the two combatants tease up, tease, amping up the violence, but they just don't. Now, I'm not saying these folks should go out there and actually hurt or injure one another, but it is 1998 WWF, and the main event style is sort of set in stone, and these two are refusing to abide by those rules in place. Now, back inside the match, Kane puts his head down for a back body drop, and the taker straight up football kicks him like he's goddamn Charlie Brown. But Kane shoots up, selling no pain, just like how The Undertaker does his sit-up. But Kane has done sort of a stand-up version of that, and I appreciate it. It feels like really good character work. (laughs) As I'm looking at my list, I'm like, oh, oh no, that's the last piece of positive evidence for quite some time. Um, uh, Kane no-sells some more, and the taker, taker does the same. And here's the problem. You'll get like a big move from Kane, and the Undertaker will sit up. And then they just start punching one another again. And then Kane will maybe get, excuse me, then the Kane will get knocked down, and then he'll sit up. And so I don't have a problem with it being big spot sit up, big spot sit up. But after each sit up, we get about a minute of just punching and random pushing it's just it's these guys aren't doing anything that's the problem and for god's sakes they botch a tombstone t-spot it looked like complete communication who's directing this match who's the heel who's the babyface? i don't know but since the undertaker's in there i gotta assume he's the one calling the match and i can just hear him in my head now you know if we went out there in chicago and if kane just would have listened to me like that kid maven did I'd have made Kane a star, but, you know, these kids, they just don't want to put in the effort. And then they redo the exact same spot, and it looks like it wasn't a tombstone botch. It looks like the spot was supposed to be Kane lifts the Undertaker, and the Undertaker gets behind him so he can kick out his leg from under his leg. And it's clear to me they redid this spot because leg work was such a huge part of the match narrative going forward. So it's bad enough to botch something and go back to it, but it's even worse when the thing you go back to is revealed to be the entire narrative crux of the match. It's like, you know what, you missed your opportunity, so think of something else on the fly. I'm not a professional wrestler, and I'm not trying to make it sound like it's easy, but it is Mark Taker. He's supposed to be the best. Now, Austin, since there's some legwork going on, he does comically ask Kane if he wants to quit due to the intense leg trauma inflicted by Mark Taker. And the crowd pops, but they're popping for the referee. So, yeah. And, you know, if you look at the VHS box of this match, it's telling you the truth, I guess. It's a picture of The Undertaker with Kane in a leg lace. And that's pretty much the entire match. And I'm not usually not a stickler for stuff like this, but after this leg lace, Kane makes a babyface comeback, and he hits a very large, very loud big boot on the taker. And I call it very loud because Kane, like, puts his arms up, and it's a huge big boot. But he hits him with his uninjured foot, which means that all 300 pounds are now squarely on the injured leg. I just... uh. And to to top matters off, it's not even like he hits the taker, because taker ducks and then goes back to the leg. So Kane's standing there. I could, I guess make an argument that if Undertaker hits the the, the the foot that's okay, maybe it causes Kane to fall down too, like I lost my brace, but I just don't know. It's <sighs> Now, here's another point, case in fact. I bought some brand new earbuds because I wanted better sound quality as I listened to this stuff, but this was the absolute worst match to use these with because I could literally hear every grunt and snot push that Kane makes and he spends this entire match it's gross hindsight being 2020 it's almost too bad that Stone Cold is such a pro because he's not going to go into business for himself and take over the narrative of the match but for fuck's sakes he absolutely should the crowd is just nuclear for Austin to do something and he will at the end This was not the right call for this match. If Austin can see they're putting on a stinker, why not just call an audible and make it be like, all right, guys, here's the thing. I'm going to start interfering when when you guys aren't looking. So maybe Undertaker goes for an arm bar and maybe Stone Cold just offers a little trip and Kane gets in control. Like, but why not have that be the story of the match? 
Austin does little things that come across as, okay, maybe he was just in the wrong spot that causes the other competitor to get control of the match. That's what Chicago wants. That's what I want. But they're just not going to sell that to us. Taker tries to do a spot where he jumps down on Kane's leg and smashes it with his butt. Like, you've seen this thing a hundred times when someone's doing leg work. But the Undertaker even manages to botch this. And it sounds like Jim Ross has reached his verdict because he starts talking about the Undertaker's unorthodox offense. And my new shiny earbuds are telling me that Chicago has reached their verdict with the boring chant. The most important piece of evidence I can offer is that when Austin gets involved in this, it's just too late. Austin's in the corner, and Taker gets whipped into that corner and kind of crushes him. As Austin pops out dazed, Kane gives him a chokeslam. The entire structure of the match breaks down as Undertaker and Kane decide they're not going to fight one another. They want to take the opportunity to beat up Austin. And finally, a positive piece of evidence as they're beating up Austin... I realize I just watched these guys beat up one another for 15 minutes because they wanted to be the champion, but I absolutely believe that these characters would drop all of that to take the opportunity to beat the shit out of Stone Cold. I do believe that. Paul Bear then comes down to confuse the, the face-heel narrative even more. Uh, I guess it should be noted he hits Kane with a chair, which means he's back with The Undertaker. Austin, the character, finally loses it, and stuns the Undertaker, and Kane's down from the chair shot. Austin hits Taker with the chair. Both men are down. Austin says, fuck it, kneels down on the mat, and just slaps a one, two, three, and we've got an official no contest. Now, the jury needs no more deliberation here, folks. This match is absolutely guilty of being a negative one-and-a-half-star encounter, according to Meltzer. And it's easy to sit here and be like, oh, this match was just boring, and that's why it is. But even boring matches can offer some sort of redemption, maybe if the crowd's into it. But these guys came out here with the wrong intent. It's really too bad. Like I mentioned earlier, these guys wrestle for 15 minutes, and then Austin finally gets involved. Along the way, there's some moments where Austin is quote-unquote funny, but it doesn't change the match structure at all. He doesn't interfere with the combatants. And it absolutely should have been every minute, minute and a half, two minutes, Austin does a little thing to change the flow of the match. It's simple. Undertaker and Kane can still go out here and wrestle, and Austin can do this stuff quote-unquote behind their back. That's going to keep the crowd engaged because if Taker and Kane are just going to punch each other, at least they know every minute or so Austin's going to do something ridiculously entertaining. And that's another way to be a negative star match, not understanding the match structure that you should be using. Again, it's really easy for me to sit here and be a Monday morning quarterback or a side seat driver, but I'm just a guy. <laughs> And, and it's clear as day to me what they should have done. It's just the wrong narrative choice. And so these guys who are consummate pros, you know, whatever you want to call them, legends, uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that they decided they were going to tell story X and they should have told story Y. It's clear as clear can be. But as guilty as this, this match was, folks... The next case we're going to review here on Starman is a case indeed unlike any other. Because we're not just trying the case of a potential negative one and a half star match. I'm sad to say the next match may also be guilty of war crimes. We'll have to see. But we're heading exactly one month into the future from Judgment Day to November of 1998. Where we're going to try a case that took place at WCW's World War III. So it's November 22nd, 1998, and it is indeed the final edition of WCW World War III. I guess the multiple World War III's finally caught up with society and everything crumbled afterwards. But we're in the Palace of Auburn Hills in suburban Detroit, Michigan, for the case of Stevie Ray versus Conan. Now let's get some context here. It appears that Stevie Ray is a member of NWO Hollywood, and he comes to the ring with Vincent. And he comes to the ring chewing on a clear straw. 
Now, I don't know what this does for his character, but it reminds me of a good friend of mine who always chews on a straw, and so I'm going to view it as a positive thing. All of a sudden, and no, this isn't WCW Must Die, but it is indeed a member of the Wolfpack. Conan is a babyface member of NWO Wolfpack here. K-Dog, if you will. And Conan, or K-Dog, does a unique dance walk to the ring. As he's making his entrance, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'm never going to talk about World War 398 again, so I'm going to take this opportunity to mention it. I don't know what Tony Schiavone's talking about on commentary, <clears throat> excuse me, but he delivers one of the greatest lines in the history of sports entertainment, and he says, a psychiatrist could have a field day with Brett Hitman Hart, and that is absolutely true, and I absolutely approve. We've got the unique three-ring World War III setup here, and there's a sign in the crowd that says Lewinsky fears Clinton, so there's all the context you need. K-Dog does his typical intro on the mic. He is truly WCW's version of Road Dog. And since they both have dog in their name, I suppose it's fitting. The bell rings, and we need order in the court, because here we go. Now, Stevie Ray begins the contest with a maneuver that I've actually never seen. He throws up the two-sweet hand sign to the audience, and as they boo, he transitions the up-top two-sweet into a down-low crotch chop. Conan retorts this taunt with a full Odelay dick grab. And so we're off to a feverish start. Conan, after the Odelay dick grab, gives himself reindeer ears. I'm not sure what kind of a taunt that is, but I wanted to make it clear in case it comes back. Stevie Ray controls early with punches. Tony says that Stevie Ray is fired up. And while I disagree with this fact, it makes me think of late 2000s WCW commentary, which we will get to someday on WCW Must Die here in the Aqua Cave, when Stevie Ray is on commentary. And the announcers always jokingly say, Somebody say something about getting fired up! It's real, and it's coming your way in the Aqua Cave. Now, Stevie charges at Conan in the corner. Conan retaliates with a big boot and then organically transitions into what I've lovingly called his potato peeler clothesline. And it looks good. All right. But then he does more reindeer ears. And I just don't understand what he's trying to get across to the audience. But Conan is in a big babyface comeback about 45 seconds into the match. And his big babyface comeback follow-up to the potato peeler is indeed Armbar. And oh my, Stevie Ray fights out of this arm bar and comes back with a reverse crescent kick that misses by such a wide margin that even all the members of the Supreme Court in the United States of America could agree that it looks bad. Next, they somehow botch a clothesline. Wrestling star Vincent gets in on the action by choking Conan. And then Stevie Ray transitions from this choke scenario into his very own chin lock. Lots of chin locks while reviewing today's cases. I think that might be a constant we find in these matches that have been accused of negative star rankings. The the chin lock transitions into a backslide, but only gets two. Stevie Ray then tells the crowd, it's over. He backs into a corner and starts to measure Conan, again indicating it's over and yelling to the crowd that this will finish it. Is he going to hit a big move? Perhaps something that only Stevie Ray does? A signature maneuver, if you will? No! It's a massive jumping elbow that fails to connect, and Conan starts up a babyface comeback. He hits his own reverse crescent kick that lands low in the dick. He then transitions to an X-factor as Stevie Ray is crouched over in pain. Stevie Ray luckily lands on his knees, preventing facial impact into the mat, Uh, but does indeed sell the maneuver as if he didn't block it. So we've got a botch. Vincent's on the apron. Conan is distracted, but turns around into a Stevie Ray eye poke that Stevie Ray botches because his finger misses by a country mile. Conan sells the eye pain anyway. 
Irish whip towards Vincent, but it's reversed, and we've got an accidental slapjacking as Vincent slapjacks the wrong individual. <laughs> Look at the adjective. Slapjacks. Hilarious sell by Stevie Ray after the impact as he stands dazed like, whoa, 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 and then he falls down. Conan, being the babyface, is an idiot and should go for the pinfall, but mounts Stevie Ray for punches. The referee warns that he can't do mounted punches, but Conan pushes away the referee, indicating he wants the mounted punches to continue, and the bell rings for a disqualification. Oh, my God. All right. So, it was short, like six minutes, and it wasn't really boring per se, but it certainly wasn't interesting. Here's the big kicker, though, guys. This match has no structure because there's no story, okay? And they botched moves that shouldn't have been botches, so that's two strikes. And they seem to switch at certain times between heel and face, like, without any sort of rationalization. So, that's strike three. You're already out, but there's a simply moronic finish. We couldn't put Conan over Stevie Ray, or vice versa. We couldn't put Stevie Ray over Conan. So we get this stupid DQ that satisfies no one and just doesn't... It, it, there's no point to it. It's the like second or third match on the card. We can certainly put somebody over. Uh, Conan looks like an idiotic babyface for not just pinning after the slapjack. So you add all that together, put it in a blender, and it's an easy easy call for the jury folks guilty due to no story period but we're not going to put a period on all of this folks because we've got one more match and we're going to fast forward exactly one year to november of 1999 but we're going to stay put as well how is this possible you might ask because folks we're going to stay in the joe lewis arena in suburban Detroit. It's the Survivor Series, November 14th, 1999, again, in the aforementioned Joe Lewis Arena, for our final case of the day. It is the case of, excuse me while I catch my breath because this is a long one, <clears throat> the case of Tori, not Wilson, Deborah, Mae Young, and the fabulous Moolah. Versus Ivory, Luna, Terry and Jacqueline, a.k.a. PMS, and an eight-woman, non-traditional, sudden-death Survivor Series matchup. Now, folks, pay attention to the context here, because there's quite a bit, maybe even more evidence, maybe even more context than evidence. Michael Cole is outside locker room six. He knocks and enters before receiving a response. Why do people do that just in general in everyday life? Why knock and then open and be like, hey, I'm here? Because Terry is indeed topless in this scenario, but she is covered at least with a shirt, maintaining her dignity. Michael Cole realizes he's made a faux pas and goes to leave, but Ivory says stay. She has Michael Cole rub her tummy as she puts Cole's hand on her tummy and rubs it in a circular motion. And you know what? It's good to see these two are getting acclimated to one another because in their future history, well, they're in their upcoming future, which would be our history, I suppose, they're going to be spending eight painfully long hours together for WrestleMania all day long. Jacqueline approaches and offers Michael Cole what she calls a top-down view as well. The rest of the heels... Well, they giggle and send Michael Cole on his way, the little scamp. And on his way out, Ivory tells Mikey to come back and help her get washed up after the encounter. She offers him a polite ass spanking as well. Ivory sure is a spitfire king. And these are the heels. So what the fuck? But back into the arena, and here comes Mae Young. She's wearing a crown. She's the queen of the ring. And her theme sounds like the chicken dance is desperately trying to get started, but just can't. Next out, uh, well, no, not, actually not next. Before I transition to next, I want to point out that this Detroit crowd loves Mae Young. Because you know the sign where everybody in a row gets a letter to spell something out? 
Mae Young has her own letter row, and they've even added exclamation points to account for the extra members of their party. Truly excited to see Mae. The king indicates that she's so old, she beat King Tut for that crown. Which is kind of silly, because I don't think King Tut wore a crown. He wore a sweet turban configuration, I would imagine. But alas, I wasn't around for it, and I haven't seen Stargate in a long time, so I can't comment. Next up is Moolah, who comes out to the wondrous piano theme that goes, Ooh, yeah. Tori is next. She's immediately put in her place by the announcers as being identified by Kane's girlfriend, Tori. Fuck me, the king does indeed say an unkind thing about Kane that I will not repeat, but you all know what it is. The crowd and the king pop huge for the next member of the babyface team. It's Deborah. The king breaks the all-time puppies per minute record by saying it 68 times. Just one away. KCMGR! I'll see him, King. They're in the same spot they were the last time I saw her. And that concludes the babyface entrances. Out next, it's Shane O'Mac, baby. Oh, wait, no. It's actually just Jacqueline coming out to Shane McMahon's Sunday Night Heat theme music. On commentary, the King mocks Mae Young's farmer tan. Luna is out next. JR adds this. She's a sandwich or too short of a picnic king, but who the hell cares? <laughs> indeed, JR, indeed. Up next, that horny little she-devil, Terry Runnels. JR notes that she has no amateur background. And finally, the WWF Women's Champion, the Spitfire, Ivory. But we get a variant of Ivory as she arrives without her trademark scarf. Moolah and Mae Young attack Ivory during her entrance, and the bell rings, so I need order in the court. I'll have a cheeseburger. For the case of this sudden death Survivor Series women's tag match. May Young and Luna start, so we have context. <clears throat> Apparently this match is, ha- is taking place under trio's rules. Because May Young immediately gets thrown out of the ring. And Tori enters the fray as the legal combatant for the baby faces. Luna and Jackie... Double DDT, Kane's girlfriend, Tori. But Jackie executes the maneuver before Luna can get positioned. And so, Jackie and Tori fall to the ground while Luna stands there awkwardly. They decide to redo the spot as it was originally intended as a double suplex. Jackie is in the ring with Tori wrestling in the corner. Luna is leaving the ring after this double team spot. She offers a tag to Ivory by placing her hand in the air in Ivory's direction. Luna's hands are still in the air. Ivory doesn't offer a tag back. The referee looks at this, signals the tag has been made, and Jackie stays in the ring wrestling Tori as Luna exits ashamed. After a snapmare, though, Jackie tags Luna back in. Then Mula gets the tag. For the baby faces, she's ignored, but pulls Ivory into the corner. <laughs> she whips Ivory into the ropes. Mula forms Voltron with Mae Young as they offer a very slow double clothesline. It'll look better when you fast forward to tape, King, offers JR. Mula hits what I'm calling a tiny warrior splash. She does the warrior's big splash maneuver, but jumps about an inch into the air before... <laughs> planking herself into the splash position for the one, two, three. (laughs) Look, guys, I get it. I'm not an idiot, but come on. I mean, the entrances are longer than the match itself. And the the fuck-ups are so entertaining to watch. (sighs) This isn't WCW Must Die, though, okay? So I offer you this compromise. I find the match guilty. And now my sentencing, a light warning. Because let's be honest, equate this to like, maybe your kids or your nephew, your niece, just maybe you're charged with babysitting a group of young kids for the day. Just imagine, okay? And the kids say, hey, we're going to put on a play for you. And it's like the worst thing you've ever seen. But it's fun. And these are children presenting. And so you clap and applaud and tell them what a good job they did. Now look, 
I am not trying to marginalize the 1999 WWF women's roster by comparing them to children putting on a play. Lord knows the WWF did enough to marginalize them before I even got on this show. But these are not... I mean, some of them are trained wrestlers. Some of them are in their 70s, for God's sakes. The expectation is not a match, okay? I don't know any other polite way to put it. And that's where my example of kids putting on a play comes into example. You don't expect them to put on a Tony-winning extravaganza. I don't expect this to be a regular match extravaganza. And due to these extenuating circumstances, I'm going to allow these ladies to return home and just kind of say, don't get into any more trouble. I don't want to see you back in the courtroom anytime soon. But in order to maintain my credibility and the credibility of the project, there are too many botches and nonsensical narrative choices here for, for it to be decided, for it not to be declared not guilty, or guilty. Fuck, that didn't make any sense. I gotta declare it guilty if I want to keep face, okay? And so, it looks like the docket of today's cases is indeed clear, and that's going to wrap up this latest edition of Starman covering negative one and a half star matches. Now, looking forward into the docket, it looks like the next time we be coming at you, it's going to be our last trio of negative one and a half star matches. But after that, things are going to get a lot harder in the courtroom as we're going to start looking at cases that are negative two stars. Oh my God, I can only imagine what we have to look forward to. But speaking of looking forward to, folks, things in the Aqua game have gotten streamlined here recently. If you take a look at the feed of the shows that we're now offering, it's streamlined and only the good ones are still there. I realized there was a lot of content and maybe I was just excited to have an avenue to present it all to you. But we're going to focus on what folks seem to like around here. We're going to keep coming back with new episodes of Starman, UPN which covers the first episodes of SmackDown's got three episodes left. We're going to keep coming at you with Kingfish, reviewing Sunday Night Heat in the early days. And, of course, the flagship WCW Must Die will continue to uh, lay anchor here in the docks of the Aqua Cave. Stream Fighter 2 will come around again sometime when there's a streaming release that really necessitates it. And the Obi-Wan Kenobi series has concluded, and you can find reviews and recaps of the entire series here in the Aqua Cave archives. Please subscribe, like us, follow me on Twitter at TheJohnnyC, that's J-O-N-N-I-E-S-E-A. And write a review if you feel up to it. Follow the North-South Connection Podcast Network as well. They've got all kinds of fantastic wrestling content to you. And come back... The next time we're here to render more verdicts on Starman. That's right. I'm a motherfucking Starboy. Ah.